Is it worth it to follow God? Is there value, is there profit, any profit, in keeping his ways? This morning as we come to the sixth and final disputation that we find in this unique book, this unique Old Testament book of Malachi, we find a people who, beyond believing the answer to that question or those questions is no, aren't afraid to say as much. Our text follows a familiar pattern. We've seen it now throughout the book. God levels a charge against his people. Verse 13, your words have been hard against me. These words aren't casual complaints. These words aren't the kind of offhand remarks that we sometimes make and have to go and ask forgiveness for. These words are harsh and steady coming from the lips of God's people. These words are cruel and accusatory. These words are reviling words against God. And somehow, the people are unaware that they're uttering them. As has been their habit all along, the people doubt the charge that God makes against them. They are defensive. They are unaware. And they challenge what God says. How? How have we spoken against you? And the Lord elaborates. I'll tell you how. You have said it is vain to serve God. The word here translates it's translated vain is useless or or uh, even ruinous so it's useless to serve God it's ruinous it's hard on me to serve God some versions translate this word as foolish or pointless or futile what is the profit they ask uh, of our keeping his charge or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts, their words betray some pretty poor theology. Their words betray some pretty poor understanding of, of their purpose, of any of our purpose, really, in the world. These men and women are fundamentally self-centered. If they ever were God-centered, they aren't anymore. What, they decry, is the benefit to us of following the laws of God. What is the benefit to us of participation in the rituals and, and the liturgies of worship? And the implied answer to the question is none. There is no profit, they think, in keeping the charges of God. You see, the people of Judah have gotten to a place where they really believe if they would observe the statutes of God and offer the worship he requires, they're none the better. And if they do not keep the statutes of God and bring the worship he desires, they are none the worse. They see no distinction between those who follow the Lord and those who don't follow the Lord. So why bother to follow the Lord? If we were the diagnosing sort, we might say these people seem depressed. They certainly seem to feel oppressed. And they clearly view the oppressor to be God. So they have decided it is vain to serve God. It is useless. It is pointless. It is futile. That's what they're saying. But is it true? It's what they have concluded. But is it true? 
Have they accurately assessed their situation? For instance, they feel that they have followed God and they have not been rewarded for it. But have they really? Consider so far what God has said about them in this little book. They doubt that he loves him. They profane his temple by bringing blemished offerings to him, offerings that he has forbidden. They divorce their wives on a whim, casting aside the covenant commitment they've made to one another. They are bringing idol-worshiping brides into the land. They question God's commitment to justice. They fail to present him the required tithes and offerings. And as we near the end of this book, they're bad-mouthing the Lord publicly. So let me ask, are they really following him? They think they're following him, and they're not getting what they deserve. But they're not following him. And they're saying that it is vain to serve God. And God could very well speak back to them and say, how would you know? It's vain to serve God. How would you know? You're not serving me. They think they are, but they're not. They're assuming somehow that they have made the effort to keep the charges of God, that they have done what is right. And the truth is they're deluded. Their self-assessment is weighted heavily in their favor, but it is inaccurate. So their conclusion about the vanity of serving God is based at best in a distorted perception of who they really are and what they're really doing. On top of that, they've decided there's no profit in following God by comparing themselves to others who in their estimation are wicked and immoral and yet seemed continually to be blessed. Why do the wicked prosper? It's one of the questions that comes up again and again throughout Scripture, not just here, but in other places. It's something we wonder about today, too, don't we, if we're honest. Why do the wicked prosper? That's an undercurrent among the people in Malachi's day. They really are saying, listen, we're doing all the right things. We're making all the right moves. But they weren't. Right, we've established that. They thought that, but they weren't. And then they're thinking that we're doing all the right things, but we're getting all the wrong results. And they're blaming God for not giving them what they feel they deserve, when in fact that's not true either, because God is pleading with them, and they are getting exactly what they deserve. And then what happens, but they become afflicted with self-pity. Self-pity is one of the ditches that you can expect to fall into if you choose to compare yourself with someone else. Comparing ourselves with others will always leave us either discontented or arrogant, writes Peter Adam. We can choose people who have more than we have and this will make us discontented. We could choose people who have less than we do, and this would make us arrogant. Comparisons, he says, are odious. Do you get that? Do you agree with that? If I'm going to compare myself with someone who has more than me, if I'm going to fall into that trap, I'm going to fall into that ditch. 
How come that person has all that stuff? And I don't. And if I'm going to compare myself with the one who has less than me, then very soon pride will creep in and I'll start to think good about myself because of all the stuff I have that he or she does not. Comparisons are odious. They're repulsive. They're, there's no real upside. It's something that everybody does, but, but there's not much upside to comparing ourselves with others. I'd, I would caution you against it. It has driven the people in Malachi's day to despair. Why bother to do what God says is right when there's no gain to show for it, really, is what they're saying. All the wicked are allowed to test God and they escape, is what Bonnie read. All the wicked are allowed to test God and escape. Well, let me ask you this. Is that true? Do you ever notice how sometimes when we get upset and we get in a bad frame of mind, the stuff coming out of our faces is not true? We think it's true. But it's not true. You have to examine this stuff. All the wicked are allowed to test God and they escape. Is that true? Someone who seems to flaunt the laws of God and finds worldly ease and prosperity. Does that person really escape the judgment of God? Will that person escape the judgment of God? Listen, friend, what, what that immoral person is escaping is the immediate judgment of God. Sometimes you and I call for, want, expect the immediate judgment of God to fall on transgressors. And we can even tell you who those transgressors are. And we could probably tell you what God ought to do to them. Isn't it funny how we want the immediate judgment of God to fall on someone else? But if we thought about who we were, and if God would apply that same standard fairly, would we want the immediate judgment of God to fall on us? No, we would not. There are times in our lives when if the immediate judgment of God had fallen, we'd look a lot different. We might not even be here right now. That's the reality of it. What any immoral person in this world, any ungodly person, any wicked person, is escaping is the immediate judgment of God. And that's because, and the Bible tells us, he graciously allows the sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. That's his decision. That's what he does. But no one, listen, no one will be able to avoid the ultimate judgment of God. And this is what Malachi has said previously. The God of justice is coming. The God of justice is coming. But the people of Judah have such an earthbound view. There doesn't seem to be much awareness among them uh, as to the prospect of eternity. Even those who, who live in our New Testament era, who are in Christ Jesus, if their hope in Christ is for this life only, the Apostle Paul says, they are to be most pitied. As God's chosen, as God's beloved, we are citizens of a different kingdom, of a heavenly and an eternal kingdom. And so the hardships and the challenges of this life are very real, very painful, very burdensome. And yet, in the worst case, the Bible calls them light 
and temporary afflictions that do not compare to the eternal weight of glory. That is a perspective we're to have as children of God. When we believe, when we act as if this life is all there is, we are bound to become disillusioned. We're bound to become despondent. We were made for more than this life. We were made for eternity with God. We get wrapped up in this life. We think this is all there is. We're going to become despondent. We're going to be disillusioned. And the eyes of the people of Judah are on those around them. They're comparing themselves to, to others, and their eyes are on all those around them when their eyes should have been lifted up to the one who loves them, the God who loves them, and the God who, through even through these rebukes, is pleading with them, return to me, return to me. Their eyes weren't in the right place. Sometimes, it, And that's easy for all of us, isn't it? That's why the scripture tells us, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You've got to keep looking up. These people were not looking up. Their minds are made up, and they don't seem to be willing to be changed by the facts. You ever find yourself in that spot? I know what I know. Please don't confuse me with any information that might change my mind. That's kind of where they're at. They've concluded that it is useless to serve the Lord. Their wrong thinking has led them to wrong conclusions, which has led, as it invariably does, to wrong speaking. Wrong thinking leads to wrong conclusions, leads to wrong speaking. We just studied this a little bit in our Sunday school class on overcoming bitterness. And we saw there how a couple of Bible characters, in particular Esau in the book of Genesis, Naomi in the book of Ruth, misinterpreted their circumstances. And when they misinterpreted their circumstances, they spoke wrongly about them. They spoke rashly about them. Distorted thinking almost always leads to wrong speaking. And so, friend, when you find yourself in a place of despondency or desperation, disillusionment, as these people of Judah were in, because of your mind's assessment of a particular situation, you're supposed to assess it, but you may not always get it right. So a good place to start to untangle any mess that you find yourself in is asking, is it true? Is what I'm saying true? Is what I'm concluding true? Is what I'm believing true? I know what I feel. I know what I believe. But is it true? Have enough humility to ask that question and explore it. Whatever is true, Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what the Bible tells us. Think about what is true. Think about what is honorable. Think about what is just and what is pure. How much time do we squander dwelling on things that aren't true? How much time do we spend worrying about things that never come to pass? How much energy do we spend getting angry about stuff that does not transpire? Like we're angry for something that might happen. A good many of the people of Judah had been given over to the idea that it is useless to follow God. They had drawn the wrong conclusions and they were speaking badly about the Lord. But look, not all the people 
felt this way. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Did you see? Look, look. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Do you notice this? Have you noticed this? Here we are finally. We are eight verses away from the end of this book. And we finally get a whiff of something positive. Do you notice that? It's taken all this time before we finally get to a place. Up until now, every single indictment that the Lord has against his people has been met with resistance. They, they, have, they have demonstrated no conviction for their wrongdoing. They have no remorse for their sin against God. They have no capacity or will to change whatsoever. And now we see why uh, the Lord is faithful to continue to speak the truth. Because, in fact, not everyone is turning a deaf ear. Not everyone is turning a blind eye. Some actually heard the Lord. Some heeded the voice of God. Some, Malachi says, feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the scripture teaches, it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of doing what is right. Saying what is right. Choosing what is right. The converse of that, uh, of that would be true then as well. If you, we don't have the fear of the Lord, we're inclined to do what is wrong. And to say what is wrong. And to choose what is wrong. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All the good things start with reverence and consideration for God. And some of the people that God was addressing actually did fear him. And that fear is not just trembling, fear, worry. That fear is reverence. It is awe. It is devotion. It is worship. It's some of the, it's some of the things that you just heard if you were in Steve's fear of man class. That's what the fear of the Lord is, the beginning of wisdom. Here we are in Malachi, and finally some people existed that feared the Lord. There was a faithful remnant in Judah. That idea of a faithful remnant is a theme that we find often in Scripture. In when the majority wants to fall away from truth and abandon right living, we'll often find a group that doesn't. There's a minority, at least, that's not willing to give up on God, on what God says, on what God requires. So I want to ask you this challenging question. Would you consider yourself to be in such a minority today? In a post-Christian era, are you committed to holding fast to God? To holding fast to God's ways, to God's truth, to being committed to God's word? Because listen, it is easy to jettison a supposed faith when it becomes a liability. It's easy to toss away your faith when it costs you something. It is easy to believe the false narratives about God when they are repeated so often. It is easy to want to evade the ire and the condemnation and stigmatization that faithfulness among the faithless is bound to invite. You want to be a true Christian in your workplace? You may pay a price for that. You want to testify to Jesus in your school? You may pay a price for that. 
And it's easy then just to back away from that and and not do it and not be part of the faithful. As C.S. Lewis put it, when the whole world is running towards a cliff, he who's running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. (laughs) Much of the world in Judah was plummeting over this cliff of, of disbelief. By Malachi's time, many had abandoned any fear of God. If they had any, they had, they had abandoned it. Those few who chose to honor and follow the Lord despite it all would have seemed like they had lost their minds, and yet they held fast. They feared God, and they responded to what he was saying to them, and they weren't defensively asking the Lord, how have we wronged you? Every time this comes up, how? How have we wronged you? Where in? What have we done? No, these are the people who are looking at each other, hearing the word of God come to them and saying, what have we done? Or, or perhaps having the conversation, what can we do? Brothers and sisters, notice here the same Lord who overheard the hard words being spoken against him also heard the words of those who feared him. Now we've noted this previously, God doesn't have the privilege of not hearing everything that's said about him. Okay? He hears it all. The bad, of course, but also the good. He heard the conversations of the faithful. He heard their responses to the truth that he was revealing and his pleas for reform that he had been making, and he notices them. And we're going to see that he rewards them which is the contrast to the beginning. There's no value in it. There's no purpose in it. There's no profit in it. God's word is going to turn this around and say, yes, there is. Because God hears and sees these faithful ones, this faithful remnant. And we read in Malachi that a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And there's a simple principle at play here that we should know. God is going to ultimately honor those who honor him. The Bible teaches this in multiple different ways. Jesus says uh, something similar. If you'll acknowledge me before my father, I'll acknowledge you. If you deny me, I will deny you. In 2 Timothy, we read that one may disown, if, if one disowns God, God will disown that person. God will honor those who honor him, and God will disown those who disown him. But here we have God seeing that a book of remembrance is written, in other words, honoring and remembering those who've done good things. Remember, as the people of Malachi's time looked around and they saw injustice and they saw oppression and what they perceived to be a lack of care for them on God's part, God had let them down. They concluded it really didn't matter how they related to the Lord. It's vain to serve him. There's no profit in it. But this verse tells us something very different. In the practice of ancient kings who memorialized in writing the good deeds of their subjects, the names of those who fear the Lord will be remembered. Now this right here is another sermon that I'm not launching into, but you would know where I would go with it if I were to do that. Listen, the names of those who fear the Lord will be remembered. They will be recorded. Their names will be written down. They will be preserved in a book. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that ring a bell? I I really want to preach this, but I'm going to refrain. Mary Ann Kidder wrote a, uh, 
a hymn, it's not in the newer hymnals, but some of you would know it, is my name written there? Is my name written there? That's a good question, don't you think? In God's book of remembrance, is my name written there? She also wrote another hymn. I just learned this today, really. It did not seem to make it down through the uh, ages. Its title was, Show Kindness to Thy Pastor. <laughs> True story. Yeah. I'm thinking, why didn't that one make it? God's going to remember the faithful ones. He's going to write their name down. It will be forever preserved. They shall be mine, verse 17, says the Lord of hosts. They shall be mine. I want you to understand today it is no small thing for anyone to be included among those whom God claims for himself. To know that God says, you are mine, is sweet and reassuring and is meant to be. Isaiah 43, 1, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This blessing and distinction is reserved for those who fear him, those who hear his voice, those who follow him. He says, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, commentator John McKay tells us, his treasured possession here is a phrase, a word, uses a word which in secular context denotes the personal property of a king as distinct from what is his as monarch. In other words, a personal treasure. This is what is, this is, what is being conveyed by Malachi, by God through Malachi. God is saying that we are his and that we are his, we are his personal treasure. God's chosen ones are not only his, they are precious to him. His children are his treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. That's what God is saying. I'm going to write their books down, uh, their names down in a book. I, I'm going to write their names down. I'm going to call them mine. I'm going to make sure they're going to be my personal possession. I'm going to see to it, and I will spare them. I will spare them. So we have read so far in Malachi about a coming day, a day uh, when the God of justice comes. And we know that this is partially fulfilled already when the word became flesh and dwelled among us on that first Christmas. And we know why Jesus came into this world. He came not to condemn it, but he came to save it to die in the place of ruined sinners, to satisfy the justice of God for the sins of humanity by presenting himself as the only worthy sacrifice to atone for our sin. Because of what Jesus did, salvation is ours for the asking. Because of what Jesus did, salvation is yours for the asking. Another question, have you asked? Justice came at the first appearing of Christ, and justice will be served at the second. This is what the scripture teaches. When Christ comes back on this day, when the Lord of glory returns, judgment will come. And what Malachi is saying is that 
some will be spared. The faithful will be spared. Verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Once more you shall see, once more, maybe once upon a time, the lines of distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous were plain and, and more obvious. But to Malachi's contemporaries, they seem to be blurred because that's why they come up with that. It doesn't really matter how you live, whether you're righteous or not righteous, serve God or don't serve. But God is saying, listen, once more you will see the distinction. Well, how is anybody going to see this distinction? You will see this disti distinction in the judgment of God. Now, there's going to be, next week, we're going to dig deeper into that. We're going to leave that right there. There's a lot of meat on that bone. That's next week. But the blurriness will come into focus once more, God promises, between the righteous and the unrighteous on the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it will be crystal clear on that day who belongs to God and who doesn't, who is saved by God and who isn't, who will live eternally with God and who won't. Might I remind you again, beloved, this day is coming. This day is surely coming. And the only reason that it has not come before now is that God is patient and God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So if today you are among those who have taken full advantage of this window of opportunity left open by our Creator for your salvation, if you have taken advantage of this window of opportunity and you are saved and you have been spared not by your good works, you know that, but by your faith in him who loves you and gave himself for you, then take a moment, would you, just to praise God. Praise God. You're saved. God spared you. And you will be spared in the judgment. If today you are holding back for whatever reason. Maybe you're hurt by life circumstances. Maybe you're discouraged by injustice like the people of Judah. You're at that point of wondering if it's worth it to serve God or to align yourself with God. If it's worth it to keep the charges of God, let me assure you, it is. So this message starts with that. Is it worth it? To serve the Lord? The answer is, it is. If you are holding back from serving the Lord, giving your life to the God who loves you and made you and wants what's best for you, let me encourage you to hold back no more. Let me encourage you not to leave this place going recklessly and blindly on your way, but to trust in him who loves you and saves you. And let me assure you of this. The King of Glory would love to say of you, you are mine. You are my treasured possession forever. Our Father and our God, your mercy and your grace are abundant.
and amazing that you love us the way that you do even when we are wayward and rebellious, sinful. We give you praise for pursuing us and showing us a better way. We ask you to move in our hearts and in our minds and help us to be those sorts of people who are humble enough to hear what you have to say about us and not offended and defensive and pushing back against the indictments that come only as we hold our lives up against the standard of your word and your truth. Lord, I pray today might be a day of salvation for those who to this point have held back, that by your spirit you would move in this midst and do your business of convicting and convincing the work only you can do. Have your way in us, we pray. Save, dear ones, today and remind the saved of what a great and awesome God you are and what a gift we have received. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.